0: Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this bonus-sized episode, Dr. Douglas Bradburn sits down with best-selling author and Pulitzer Prize winner Rick Atkinson to discuss Volume 1 of his new Revolution trilogy titled The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, 1775-1777. As a friendly reminder, there's still time to register for our upcoming Ford Evening Book Talk with Xavier F. Salomon, who will talk about his new book, Canova's George Washington, on June 4. More information about the event can be found on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. As always, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast series so that you do not miss an episode. Also, if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And without further ado, we join Dr. Bradburn and Rick Atkinson in the studio.
1: All right, well, everybody, here I am, Doug Bradburn, President and CEO of George Washington's Mount Vernon with Rick Atkinson, the renowned military historian, Pulitzer Prize winner, most known for his work on World War II and his Liberation Trilogy. And I'm excited to say that he's going to take his formidable talents to the story of the American Revolutionary War and give us another trilogy of uh, of great history and military exploits, uh, and he's here with me. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Doug. Good to be here. Always good to be at Mount Vernon. Rick is uh, a na- right now lives in Washington D.C.,
2: born in Germany, the son of a U.S. Army family. Yeah, my father was an army lieutenant. He'd uh, gone into the army in World War II, uh, drafted, actually enlisted in uh, in late uh, 1942 when he turned 18. Mm. Uh, came back from Europe in 1946, uh, went to Penn State, and then went back into the army. He liked it so much, unlike most... Uh, uh, young officers. He had become a lieutenant by the end of the war. Uh, and he went back in and became a career army officer. And uh, One of the first places he was sent was to Salzburg, hmm. and so we lived in Salzburg the first three years of my life. I happened to be born in Munich, because that's where the army hospital was, and uh, spent the rest of uh, his career and dragging me with him from army base to army base. He was an infantry officer. And uh, so it was, it was a peripatetic life of, a, of an army brat.
1: And what about your mother and her family? Where are they from?
2: They're from Philadelphia. My dad's from uh, the Jersey side of Philadelphia. Um, Her father was a banker. Uh, She met my dad at Penn State. Uh, He was a a returning veteran. She was five years younger and Mm -hmm. uh, married him the day after she graduated uh, from from Penn State and lived a life that I think she and many army spouses don't anticipate. And that is the army wife in her case where um, you're taken away from Philadelphia and you're never coming back. your, your life is to make a home and uh, for your soldier and for the kids. Uh, not an easy life, actually. So
1: you found yourself as a writer, wanted to be a writer at some point. You went to the University of Chicago as an undergrad, which I went to the University of Chicago to get my Ph.D. in history. So we
2: have that nice Hyde Park link. Yeah. But, um, I was actually a graduate student there. Oh, you were? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So In English. And what was your undergrad then? Uh, English, East Carolina.
1: Okay, East Carolina, sure. Okay. And w- w- did you know you wanted to be a journalist or a writer or what
2: no uh, I didn't Doug I, d- I didn't know what I wanted to be in the great tradition of uh, uh, you know undergraduate English majors yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't work on the college newspaper I thought I wanted to teach college English mm-hmm. and uh, Chicago in the mid 70s uh, there were guys who had their PhD sheepskins tacked up on the bar at Jimmy's a famous bar yeah, in Hyde Park Jim's. yeah no, you know Jimmy's because uh, they couldn't find any jobs, yeah. even with PhDs, and so uh, I had wandered out uh, after I got my master's to see my parents. They were stationed then in Kansas, and got a, a job, stumbled into a job, uh, called a, an editor of the Topeka paper that I, a guy had met at my parents' house, and he said, I don't have any jobs for entry-level reporters here in the big city of Topeka, but I do know of an entry-level opening in Pittsburgh. And I said, oh, Pittsburgh, that would be great. My mom and dad are from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He said, "Not that Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Pittsburgh, Kansas. Oh my! Down in the southeast corner of the state, and uh, the area called the Little Balkans because it's fractious, and <laughs> the lead and zinc mines were uh, yes. were, were run by uh, Italian and Eastern European immigrants. A very interesting part of Kansas." And so I went down there and started out as a cub reporter on the Pittsburgh Morning Sun and worked there for 18 months and then went to Kansas City from there.
1: What did you learn about writing there that you didn't uh,
2: know already? Uh, I learned a lot. I learned to be less self-conscious about it. I learned to be fast. I, I, you know, I taught myself to type uh, between college and graduate school. Um, I learned uh, the, the utility of brevity mm-hmm. and the necessity of, of brevity. Now, some would claim, <laughs> given these doorstops that I write these days, that I didn't learn it very well. Uh, I think I learned something about narrative yeah. and narrative structure. Um, storytelling. Uh, storytelling. You know, it's, yeah. And it's an opportunity to make mistakes. At mm-hmm. uh, one point, the managing editor, a very fine journalist, came up to me and said, I'm going to give you a byline on the corrections box if you don't you know correct yourself <laughs> and that's a you know uh, i think the 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 lesson learned there is uh, accuracy is important it's your credibility is predicated on how accurate you can be and i i think i learned that uh, from newspapering as well as from graduate school
1: now you uh, eventually made your way to the washington post which was one of the great well it still is one of the great newspapers of the country, but particularly, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, riding high from the successes of the Watergate investigations, the Pentagon Papers, and all these extraordinary journalists, it was really becoming the place to be for a journalist. I yeah.
2: Think. Yeah, I started there in 1983. Yeah. I, I worked in Kansas City for four years and then in Washington for the Kansas City paper for two years. And uh, yes, I mean, it was a great dream of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I was in Pittsburgh, Kansas, the managing editor one day said, I'm going to take the entire newsroom to the movies this afternoon. We're going to walk down to the theater, which we did, all seven of us, and we saw all the president's men. Mm-hmm. Fabulous movie about Watergate, uh, about Bob Woodward and and, uh, and Carl Bernstein. And the uh, next thing I know Bob I'm, Woodward got the best casting of any <laughs> real person. You know? It's like who would you want you to play? Yeah, Robert, Robert Redford Redford. That's yeah, what everybody says. Young Robert Redford. <laughs> I played him pretty well actually. Yeah. And yeah. uh and you know, so that I end up in the same newsroom with Bob Woodward and have been friends with him now for more than 30 years. So, uh, yes, it was a very exciting place, owned by the Graham family. Catherine Graham was the uh, publisher and CEO. Uh, ben Bradley hired me, a famous uh, executive editor, fabulous yeah. person, and great character, and a great journalist.
1: Well, they also, they recently got their own movie as well, right?
2: Uh, they did. Uh, how did of, you like the portrayals of Bradley and Graham? And, uh, you know, uh, Tom Hanks plays Bradley, and Meryl Streep plays Kay, and they're tremendous.
1: I think through the World War II connection, you must know Tom Hanks as well. You know, I, I do. I know. chance my, to be around him. Yeah, this,
2: yeah. I, I, I do, and uh, you know, having known Bradley for a long time, Hanks doesn't try to replicate the voice, mm. this deep, gravelly voice. Jason Robards in All the President's Men has that voice. Mm. Uh, Hanks doesn't try to do that, but he's got the walk. Mm. He's got, mm. there's a kind of a swagger and Hanks <laughs> has got it to a T. And Streep uh, is, it's uncanny, the portrayal of, of Kay Graham, mm. uh, including all the insecurities mm. and the hesitations and the steel will.
1: I just watched the movie on a plane ride, actually. Uh, for, I hadn't seen it yet.
2: Yeah, it's, really it's very Quite good. enjoyable way to yeah. spend the trip. Yeah, it's a, it's a fine movie. Huh. And a, uh, you know, it's a depiction of a newspaper doing the kind of courageous things that newspapers ought to do. It was a very bold, brassy, risky thing that uh, K. Graham, in particular, did during the Pentagon Papers.
1: Well, that episode kind of speaks to a a truism we say about newspapers or or journalists, perhaps, is that they write the first draft of history. Of course, in that episode, you're also uh, generating a lot of the primary sources of history, in essence. Uh, And so what transitioned you into someone interested in writing history, or had that been there from the start as, as someone writing the first draft of history?
2: Yeah, I I had taken leave a couple times to write books. I mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book about the West Point class in 1966 called The Long Gray Line, yeah. uh, left the post for 18 months to research and write that book. And then I did the same thing on a book about the Gulf War, Crusade, but came back to the newspaper world mm-hmm. and uh, back to my day job. Um, You know, Doug, after a period of time, I began to feel that there were limitations to what I could do in the newspaper business, despite the fact that I love newsrooms and the people that newsrooms attract. And uh, there's a kind of strangled quality to having to write to the newspaper template. Uh, if you want to have a deeper, richer voice as a narrative writer, I don't think you can do it at a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they don't have great writing sometimes, and even great long-form writing, but not the kind of things that I wanted to do. So having you know, written a couple of books and f- had a sense that I knew how to do it, and I knew how to write narrative, and I could get it done... Uh, you know, I just decided I was going to take a flyer. And, okay, well, what do you want to do, if you, you know? Uh, well, why not the greatest story of the 20th century, yeah, you know? Yeah. Why why not swing for the fences? And mm-hmm. that greatest story is uh, World War II, and particularly the American role in the liberation of Europe in World War II. So that's, that's, I just decided that that's what I was going to try and do.
1: So when did you begin the work on that project? The, was it always a trilogy when you imagined it? It was... I'm gonna do this in three big books and that's just the way it'll be?
2: It was, it was yeah. conceived as a trilogy from the beginning. I can tell you, I started work in earnest on the 1st of January, 1999, which was the day after I walked out of the Post newsroom, mm-hmm. and uh, thought of it as a trilogy. I used Bruce Caton and uh, and Shelby Foote as yeah. as uh, models of sorts. Uh, Caton actually wrote two trilogies. It's an old one. form
1: of history writing, very, very popular in the 19th century, yeah. really disappeared, I, I think. Yeah. Tell yeah. your trilogy. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously um, there was Ambrose. There were books that you could go kind of to put together as con- collections, but but as a, as a true trilogy that's going to tell one unified history. That, that uh,
2: is, I think that's right. Uh, I think part of it is probably to do with the publishing business. Uh, you know, you, do you want to commit yourself to? Three books over, in my case, 15 years. Uh, you got to have a publisher who's got some faith in yeah, you and in your business. In
1: you. I yeah. mean, you would had success with individual volumes, but that's a long-term commitment.
2: It is, and I've had the same editor for all seven books now, John Sterling, uh, one of my closest friends now. Mm-hmm. We've worked together for well over 30 years. And uh, when I started the World War II project, he had just become the, the publisher and president of Henry Holt, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a oh, know, venerable, venerable publisher from the mm-hmm. dating back to the 1850s, and so John and I had worked on two books previously, and John basically was a gambler and said, oh, all right, let's let's do it. We'll do it together." And um, you know, it's it, it it turned out just fine.
1: Well, just fine is uh, I think uh, being very humble in your way, really. Uh, a Pulitzer Prize later, uh, numerous other awards. Uh, uh, Rick Atkinson emerges as the leading voice of the World War II history. And uh, you know you get involved with the World
2: War II Museum, which opened when? It opened, it was a, a, a drunken idea that Steve Ambrose <laughs> had in, uh, in, in 2000. And it opened as a the rather cheesy National D-Day Museum. And Ambrose died in 2002. And that allowed his partner in crime, a guy named Nick Mueller, PhD from Chapel Hill, uh, t- who became the CEO to, to be all that he could be. And uh, Nick, among other things, is a brilliant fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And so the museum went from being the D-Day Museum to the National World War II Museum. It's now a campus of, yeah. of uh, pavilions. It's, they're almost finished. The hotel is under construction, mm-hmm. the parking garage. That'll be open is, this fall, I think. You I think that. that's right, yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been involved with them uh, for, for well, probably 13 or 14 years now. So the first volume of your series, An
1: Army at Dawn, the War in North Africa, received a Pulitzer Prize in History. And I have a quote here from the Wall Street Journal as uh, in the review, the best World War II battle narrative since
2: Cornelius Ryan's classics, The Longest Day and A Bridge Too Far. That's pretty high praise. Uh, it's high praise and particularly, f- you know, comparing me favorably to a guy like Cornelius Ryan, whom I revere as someone who can kind of set the... So lighted the path for those of us who came later. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a very generous review by by Max Boot in the Wall Street Journal. Mm. Uh,
1: the second volume, the, the Day of Battle, the War in Sicily and Italy, 1943-1944, called by the New York Times, a triumph of narrative history, elegantly written, rooted in the sight and sounds of battle. What was your goal when you were writing those books in terms of to deliver the uh, experience of the soldier?
2: Yeah, well, I think my first goal was to honor the soldier uh, without being slavishly uh, uh, without, uh, first of all, I don't buy into the greatest generation nonsense with all mm-hmm. apologies to my friend, Tom Brokaw. I just think greater than the revolutionary generation, greater than the Civil War generation, I just don't think so. and. Uh, so I wanted to, I think, uh, take some of the gloss off of the mm-hmm. the, the notion that these are demigods. Mm. They're not. Yeah. And then I want to tell the story from, uh, and the same is true for the revolution, from the tactical level of the grunt in World War II, who is living in the mud and dying in the mud, uh, to the uh, the operational level, these are military terms, which is, kind of how uh, divisions and cores come together. And then the strategic level, and we're, we're talking about Eisenhower, we're talking about Roosevelt and Churchill, Stalin uh, in World War II, and weave those together so that you've got, you've got a, a narrative that moves from low to high yeah. and is broad in all cases and very specific.
1: Yeah, so the final book, uh, The Guns at Last Light the War in Western Europe, brought the story to an end and uh, called a Magnificent Book. Uh, well, it was a New York Times bestseller, of course, and completed the trilogy. How do you think about that trilogy now, now that you're, what, five years, I guess, away or six years away? Yeah, six years, 2013. Finishing it.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think of it as being in the past, actually, <laughs> you know, yeah. because you got to yeah. feed the bulldog, and the, the past just doesn't do that. That's and good. I, it's good to let it slip behind you, I'm not trying to replicate yeah. what I did. The obvious thing would have been to yeah. turn to the Pacific. Yeah. And say, okay, I'm going to be Mr. World War II, and I'm well, now That's I'm what gonna... HBO did, right? They had the uh, they Band of Brothers, and then they did the, uh, the Pacific. They did quite successfully. Yeah. Uh, but for me, among other things, I would have had to start the war over again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? With Pearl Harbor or earlier, yeah. and I'd ended the war on May 8, nineteen forty-five, with the surrender of Germany, yeah. and that really had no appeal for me to start mm. it over again. Interesting. And Europe has more of a hold on my imagination than the yeah. Pacific. I'm yeah. very very much a Europeanist, born there, yeah. lived there uh, several times. Yeah. So um, uh, you know, I, I when I look back on it, I think, well, I learned a lot about being a writer, and I learned a lot about uh, about research and yeah. archival research, things that I did not know except in a very superficial sense from being a graduate student, mm-hmm. and I uh, really had to immerse myself in it and find out whether I liked it, yeah. which is pretty important because you're going to spend weeks, months, years, ultimately, with yourself, in archives, by yourself. Well, shouldn't,
1: shouldn't you know that before you embark on a trilogy?
2: Well, you you, like you might think so, <laughs> Doug, but I didn't. <laughs> and I found yeah. out that, you know, I, I did like it. I li- it. Well, good. It's the mystery of the next unopened box, yeah. right? You know yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You're an yeah. indefatigable researcher, and <laughs> uh, it, yeah, and it's that mystery of yeah. what's what's there, what can I find? Through all the dross, where are the little Flex of gold okay
1: so we're getting we're getting close to starting to talk about the revolution I promise so, uh, which is where your art is right now but tell uh, as we transition to that subject, think, think a little bit about the research for the World War II book, well, the, the things that were available to you, how you think you found the special uh, qualities that you could bring out that other historians hadn't uh, and then then we'll transition to the challenges of the 18th century versus, 1940s. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you do most of your research? Where did you find the material? Who helped you?
2: Well, there are probably 20 or 25 uh, archives of one sort or another that I used. And the main ones are the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, 10 miles from my house. Uh, the uh, US Army Military History Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, two hours north of my house where my father lives. Mm-hmm. He lived. He died in uh, in uh, October. Uh, So he
1: did get to see the trilogy. He did. Yeah, he
2: saw the trilogy as a World War II veteran. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did he tell you you got it wrong in different uh, places? He was generous. (laughs) Fathers, fathers. Thought I was too nice to senior officers. (laughs) The best uh, tradition of uh, of young lieutenants. and then, you know, the the British National Archives at Kew outside yeah, of amazing London. Amazing place.
1: Amazing Built place. for researchers. Wonderful place.
2: place. <laughs> Unlike our National Archives, which is kind of a nightmare. <laughs> uh, but I rely on archivists and librarians who can be your guide mm-hmm. through the thickets and yeah. help lead you uh, in and out of the woods. and. So, and then many uh, small archives, almost every state and sometimes state universities have their World War II archives. So the the 34th Infantry Division had been the Iowa-Minnesota National Guard. They have a museum uh, Mm. outside of Des Moines. The uh, Texas National Guard turned into the Thirty-sixth Infantry Division. They have a mm. very fine museum. How 40, do you 50. How do you stop researching? Them? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. there's so
1: many sources. I think that's. And so many archives across the country as you're,
2: as you're kind of laying out. It's a very good and tough question. Yeah. I, I basically put a mark on the wall. The publisher right. helps you with that because yeah. they want to publish the book. They want to hopefully make money. Uh, I put a mark on the wall and say, okay, at this date I'm going to stop. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start yeah. organizing and writing and writing. Uh, uh, and there will be things I don't know and that I will never know. you got to be comfortable sure. with ambiguity, I think, and recognize that a subject as vast as a World War, you know, I'm never going to. You know, some scholar calculated that the U.S. Army records alone for World War II weigh 17,000 tons. No, it's extraordinary. Sure. I mean,
1: and there's you still, uh, I mean, I don't even know how, what that means. 17,000 yeah, tons
2: I mean, it's, is a lot it's bigger don't. than a bread That'd be another saying. number over a
1: ton for weightage, <laughs> you know, a megaton or something, but thats that's a lot. <laughs> Uh, in the I mean, there's still surplus from World War II around, I mean,
2: it's a crazy thing, it's oh, unbelievable. I mean, World War II will be with us and our yeah. children and our grandchildren and, you know, World War II will be with us for 500 years. Okay.
1: Well, as opposed to the American Revolutionary War, which I think for a lot of Americans is extremely distant and uh, yeah. the 18th century itself is sort of like, you might as well be ancient Rome. It's it's a that's a long time ago most americans on the street if you ask them won't know the difference between the civil war you you know you, you throw some dates at them and ask them to tell you when their revolution was 18th century is like it might as well for an american be ancient history now europeans obviously have a different kind of uh, time scale yeah but so how was that for you uh, why were you interested in the uh the 18th century where did that come from and then As you transitioned to trying to master that field, what what did you confront?
2: Yeah, Well, when I decided that I wasn't going to do the Pacific, that I wasn't going to start World War II over again, uh, you know, I'm looking around for what what to do, and uh, I've had uh, an interest in the American Revolution. It's transfixed me since I was a kid, Hmm. like many people. Really? Uh, The stories of Benedict Arnold and, and Washington and, you know, what I knew, as a schoolboy, it just really uh, grabbed my imagination. And as I was thinking through, okay, what's the next narrative? What what story can you tell? Because that's how I think about it. Not what can I unearth that nobody has ever found before, but how can I put it together in a way that uh, has some resonance with a contemporary reader? Mm And I thought, well, you know, that's the greatest story of the 18th century for yeah. Americans in the same way that World War II is and for the for the 20th century and the Civil War for the 19th century. Uh, so let's go for it.
1: Did you think about the Civil War first? I mean, that's... I mean, that's been done a lot, right? yeah, a has. lot more in terms yeah. of multiple yeah. volumes, certainly. As it has. As you already mentioned Catton and yeah. Shelby Foote and yeah. others. I mean, there's many others.
2: I didn't yeah. really think about it because yeah. precisely for the reasons you mm-hmm. talk about. I You know, can you do better than yeah. those guys and and all the great scholars that are out there that Jim McPherson is writing but also
1: that it sounds like you had this true intro, I mean, this true boyhood fascination. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've always thought I mean, this is why I became an expert on the Revolution itself, I think it's one of the greatest stories in human history, you know, the whole period of independence, lead through the constitution. It's, it is a great, compelling, complex, fascinating uh, period in our, in our history.
2: So driven yeah. by uh, human foible yeah. and achievement. And, yeah. and, you know, my presumption was Doug that, uh, okay, if we go back and look at this, it'll tell us about who we are, where we came from, what we yeah. believe and and what our forefathers were willing to die for, which is the profoundest question that any people can ask themselves. Mm. And those are interesting questions to me. Uh, and it seems to me that it's a I didn't know this at the time when I began research on it in 2013, but it, if anything, it seems more important now in 2019 mm-hmm. than it was then because of, uh, because of the divisiveness within the country and all the things we're going through, the very question of, you know, is there truth? Yeah. Can we believe any of this? Yeah. Can is there, a, is there an objective way of looking at, uh, at, our, at our history, at our, our culture? Uh, and so I, you know, I started with kind of a philosophical belief, uh, on one hand that this can tell us something about the people Mm -hmm. we are, Mm -hmm. the people we have become, the people we aspire to be. And on the other hand, as a writer, boy, there ain't no narrative that's better than this one. You could not make it up. There is no novelist. I don't (laughs) care. Tolstoy could not write a story as great as the American Revolution. He did a pretty good job with... Uh, Napoleon's invasion in, in uh, Russia in, in, uh, in the early 19th century. But there, the, the, the grandeur mm-hmm. and the pathos and the variety of characters yes. and the treason and all the rest of it is just, uh, I mean, the hair on the back of my neck stands up <laughs> when I talk about it now. You could yeah. not invent it. And so that's uh, why I decided to just pivot this way. Uh, Well, the enthusiasm comes through, so let's jump right into it. You start the book
1: uh, with an anecdote that no one has ever written up that I know of, at least in the literature of the time. and. Uh, it came out of some of the work you did in England at Windsor Castle. Talk a little bit about the opening vignette before we kind of talk about the broader yeah. art of the narrative that
2: you're telling. Well, one of the things I wanted to do was to tell the story from both sides. I wanted to be on the other side of the hill to, to, mm-hmm. to see what the British were doing, both what yeah. they were doing militarily and what they were thinking politically. And, yeah. uh, uh, and so the whole trilogy will hopefully will swing back and forth between the American camp and the British camp. Um, I was spending a fair amount of time at the Society of the Cincinnati library in Washington Anderson House. Yeah, very yeah, nice. yes a very nice place usually when I would uh, sign in in the morning the last person to have signed in before me was me
1: because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's not overused yeah, yeah they, they do have that fellowship program but, <laughs> yeah regularly it's going to be
2: yeah so available I was there I signed in one day and I saw there were three names above mine they'd mm-hmm. been there the day before one was from Windsor castle one was from the royal household Uh, one was from King's College in in London and I -hmm. I said to Ellen Clark the Mm -hmm. chief librarian I said you had visitors yesterday and she said yeah they were here and they've got this program and they're taking all the Georgian papers from the four Georges Mm -hmm. and George the third is the biggest collection because he was king for 60 years and uh, they're digitizing them, and they're making them available to the public for the first time. The queen owns them, and the queen has been convinced to open them up to the public, and they're here looking for American partners and advice and so on. Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh, really?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, their American partner then was the so Omaha- your, your archive antenna went up. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Georgia III uh, is kind of important to this story, you think? <laughs> uh, so I, I uh, that afternoon when I got home, I emailed uh, the director of the Omahondra Institute, mm-hmm. William and Mary, which yeah. is their American uh, partner. Yeah. Karen uh, Wolf, who Karen, has
1: been a fellow here at Mount Vernon actually last
2: uh, December. Fine yeah. scholar and runs a great. Institute down there, and I emailed her. And I, I said, "Here's who I am." And today, I happen to see that there was that there's a project in Windsor, and I understand that you're kind of the keeper of the keys to get into the castle, literally. And uh, uh, the next thing I know, I'm one of the first uh, to go to Windsor because the Queen has uh, allowed uh, scholars to come in one at a time for a month at a time. Uh, and so uh, you know, I spent the month of April 2016, happened to be the month the queen turned 90, so it was mm. a fabulous time to be mm. in Windsor. Uh, and you'd show your badge at the Henry VIII Gate, and then your badge at the Norman Tower, and you climb uh, Mm -hmm. 102 stone steps and 21 wooden stairs, and then you're in the garret of the round tower begun by William the Conqueror Mm -hmm. in the 11th century. It's extraordinary. It is really extraordinary. And that's where the papers of George III are Mm -hmm. kept. Mm -hmm. And uh, George was his own secretary until late in life when he began to go blind, so he writes everything himself. He makes the copies himself. There's a tactile sense, and you you're dealing with the papers. You don't have to wear gloves. It's, and, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a tactile sense of being in George's presence, of being with him, of really of feeling uh, his pain as he's working his way through this yeah. calamity that uh, has become the American Revolution. So yes, that's uh, I, I open the book with a scene. It's in June of seventeen uh, uh, seventy three when George has decided he's going to go uh, inspect the fleet. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the greatest navy the world has ever seen, and he, he rides in a procession to Portsmouth, and it's like a national holiday in Britain because it's precisely 10 years after the British have prevailed at the end of the Seven Years' War, mm-hmm. the French and Indian War, as we call it. and. Uh, it's a four-day review of great splendor and pomp and so on. And I found wonderful documents that really bring it to life. I found the, the list of all the booze that they hauled from from <laughs> uh, from, yeah. from uh, St. James's uh, palace uh, yeah. as part of this fete that they were holding and many other you've little got, details.
1: You've got an incredible eye for the for the right quote, the right detail to bring this stuff to life. I mean, I think it so humanizes everything, the way you're able to draw the stories together.
2: And I yeah. mean, that, that is a great story because you can introduce George in the prologue uh, as a central character, the central character for the Brits, really, and the guy who's driving the train when the, when the revolution starts two years later.
1: Well, and it's such a, I mean, in terms of the story arc, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, of the great stories, the pathos, I mean, the, here you have the triumphing empire. This is the uh, empire in which the sun never set. I yeah. mean, right, as you point out, that was that was a phrase that came up in that decade. This 1773. The, this yeah. is the greatest uh, navy the world had seen, and uh, and they think they're the new Augustine Rome or whatever. Right. And, Uh, And and those of us who know, I mean, and even the readers of this book will know, something's going to come. I mean, this is not going to last. It's really extraordinary. Yeah, Yeah, it's not going to last. You build that sense of tension right from the start with this extraordinary episode.
2: And, uh, you know, it gives you a sense, first of all, of the power of the empire at this point. And, you know, as a consequence of their victory over the French and Spanish in the Seven Years' War, they've uh, expanded the empire greatly with new sugar islands in the West Indies and Canada and a billion fertile acres between the Appalachians and the Mississippi and India. So the empire has really become an empire. And it's all, George knows that empires are fragile. He's no fool, he knows they're fragile. And uh, even as he's there taking the salute, these incredible cannonades from uh, one great warship after another, he knows that there are issues here, whether the whether he and his ministers have the wit to be able to hold this thing together. This
1: prologue is one of the finest pieces of history writing uh, I've ever read since the 19th century greats. I mean, this is like Macaulay here. And I'm not saying that it's grandeloquent and full of you know meaningless stuff, but it's really powerful in the way you set this up. I want to read uh, a, a part of it here early on. Uh, This is, um, it starts out with a quote, There shall be Christian, universal, and perpetual peace, the treaty had declared, as well by sea as by land. In time, none of that would hold true. Yet for now, Britain cowed her rivals and dominated Europe's trade with Asia, Africa, and North America. Quote, I felt the completion of happiness, the Scottish diarist James Boswell had recently exclaimed. Quote, I had just sat and hugged myself in my own mind. This year, another writer, George McCartney, would coin a more dignified phrase, a paean to, quote, this vast empire on which the sun never sets. And it's just great. You, keep, you come back to Boswell hugging himself later on. It's, just, it's tremendous uh, work in the opening prologue. Who writes a prologue? Did you have
2: prologues in all your other uh, books? Uh, I had a prologue in each of the World War II <laughs> books, yes. Yes, a prologue, you can do a lot of things with a prologue. It's, kind of, it's a little old-fashioned, a little Macaulay-esque. Yes. Right. yes. Uh, but, you know, you can get away with a lot in a prologue, uh, and then you don't have to necessarily um, gunk up the, the, the narrative once the chapters begin. Yeah. But it's got to be narrative. It's, gotta be a, uh, it's got to be a—you've got to tell a story in the prologue, and the epilogue, too. I always have uh, epilogues because you can tie it together. But it's got to be a narrative. And we come back to Portsmouth in the epilogue of this book for a good hanging. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, so, and... uh, or Nathan uh, Hale. Uh, no, this is this is uh, John the Painter. Oh, right, John, yeah, John, yeah, yeah. John the Painter, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I had never heard of, but he turns out to be... <laughs> no one his, has. <laughs> yeah, well, they're going to know more about him now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he was an incendiary, literally, yeah. and he had taken right. a shine to the cause of the revolution, and he decided the best way he could help the Americans... This is a you know British derelict uh, who is a house painter... Mm-hmm. and uh, he decides the best way that he can help the cause is to set fire to the dockyards in Portsmouth, yeah. which he does, yeah. he he burns down the rope house. It's a major loss for the yeah. Brits, and then he decides he's gonna burn down other, well, he gets caught, and he, they, mm-hmm. they take the mast off of a British warship, they step the mast ashore where 20,000 people can watch them hang John mm-hmm. the Painter mm-hmm. as a lesson to you know, those mm-hmm. who, uh, the, the, a lesson to traitors. Yeah. So, so as a narrative historian of this extraordinary
1: tale, um, how how do you uh, you're you're dealing with personalities, and you're not you're not trying to make a, a cohesive uh, bouquet of ideas or the ideology of the revolution or anything of that. How does that work with you? I mean, and how do you how do you put together sort of the you know the causes of the revolution, the, the sort of motivations of people?
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I believe, as a narrative writer, first and foremost, that uh, I want to avoid long passages of discursive, you know, <laughs> on the, the ideolo- ideology of the yeah. American Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Bernard <laughs> Baelin did that better than I could ever think That's it, true. Uh, yeah, exactly. and there are great thinkers about revolutionary politics yeah. and how well, the 18th century fits together generally. Uh, I am not that writer, but uh, I believe that I need to be familiar with all of mm. that uh, extraordinary exegesis mm. uh, and that I need to insinuate it into the story, that you have to come away from reading this tale with a firm understanding of what the revolution was about, why the British would fight for eight years mm-hmm. against, against their own subjects for uh, across 3,000 miles of open ocean yeah. uh, in the age of sail. Uh, and that has to be um, provided, that necessary information has to be brought, provided to the reader, but hopefully through character and through yeah. incident. Yeah. Um, so that these things can be discussed, but not in long passages of, you know, arid prose mm-hmm. in which we go back and forth reviewing all of the things that make it feel like a textbook. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, if I get to that point, then I've gone wrong somewhere in the way that I write. So. Um, it's it's important, uh, and I try. I'm very cognizant of the necessity for understanding the evolution of uh, of thinking about the revolution. Uh, but I'm not trying to move the ball down the field ideologically in any way. Uh, well, I'm, I think in the, in World War
1: II, we think of that as a great just war in the sense of liberating Europe from the Nazi dread and uh, the horrific views. The American Revolution has become more ambiguous for people in, in terms of the justice of the cause over time. And how, how does it sit with you as, you, uh, as, as you've worked through it?
2: Well, uh, slavery is inescapable, isn't it? I mean, right here at Mount Vernon, the, the man had more than 300 slaves when he died in 1799, and there is no square in that circle. Mm-hmm. It is morally indefensible, even for a man who frees the slaves on his deathbed, speaking of George Washington, of course. Uh, So understanding the context of the moral universe in which they live, I Mm -hmm. think, is important. That um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. does not apply to Mm 500,000 black slaves. One out of five of all citizens living, not citizens, all souls living in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, When those words are written in the Declaration of Independence in 1776, it also doesn't apply to women, and it doesn't apply to indigents, and Mm it doesn't apply to Native Americans. There are a lot of other people that uh, the... The, the the extraordinarily profound uh, words that launch and justify the revolution mm-hmm. uh, don't apply to. Um, so I'm aware of the moral ambiguities of 18th century life generally mm-hmm. and American mm-hmm. life specifically and the revolution. I'm also aware of what the British thought they were doing. Why they why? Why? What is your problem? Why yeah. would you wage war for eight years at a tremendous cost in blood yeah. and treasure? Yeah. Uh, and I trying to understand that, they had some strategic misconceptions. First and foremost, yeah. they believed. This goes back to that scene in Portsmouth in Mm. 1773. They believe that if the American colonies slip away, that it is a slippery slope, and that next it's Canada, and then it's Ireland, and then it's the Sugar Islands, Mm. and then it's India, and then the empire is gone, and if the empire is gone, England's back to being kind of a pathetic little island in the middle of nowhere. Mm. They talk about it, the king talks about it, Lord North, his prime minister talk about it, all the ministers talk about it incessantly Mm. throughout the war. Mm. That's a strategic Losing misconception. Losing their empire. Yeah. Losing the empire. Yeah. And the king basically is not going to, it's not going to happen on hmm. his watch. It turns out to be wrong. Hmm. Well, yeah. You know, they lose <laughs> You know, the, the empire's yeah. slips yeah. away. It's, still it's, it's yeah. the domino theory, yeah. isn't mm-hmm, it? I mean, Doug, it's the strategic not.
1: Strategic ideas are often yeah, confusing. You they can't, often con- can't predict the, that's right. the future. So the, the book doesn't get to the Declaration of Independence, of course, until about midway through. So why are people fighting? Why
2: are Americans fighting?
1: Yeah, you know? I mean, there's people you, yeah. the book describes battles and people being killed and civilizations yeah. yeah. and and uh, tragedy. so what what is it that's that driven these two uh, groups to want to kill
2: each other? Well, I think part of it is that the uh, the two peoples divided by common language Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, explains some of it. Uh, Yes, we are natively English in our heritage at this point Mm -hmm. in uh, Mm -hmm. American history in the 1770s, and yet the two peoples have drawn apart inch by inch, Mm -hmm. yard by yard over the course of well over a century at this point so that they're they're really two people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the American aspirations at this point are, you know, I think whether you're a farmer in Virginia or you're a merchant in Boston or you're an an aspiring uh, printer in New York, you're feeling the heavy hand of the empire on you. Uh, The empire is telling you what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot be. It's telling you that you cannot make hats in America because that will infringe on the hat industry in England. Uh, You cannot do this, you cannot do that. You must do this, you must do that. Uh, It's a yoke. And I think that by the time we get to 1774, 1775, Many people, obviously, there are. there's a very substantial percentage who don't feel this way, but I think a majority of Americans are feeling that the yoke is oppressive mm. and something needs to be done about it. Now, whether it can be negotiated away or whether yeah. it needs to be violently thrown off, that's part of what's happening in 1775 is making that calculation.
1: One of the things I think you do nicely is uh, in, in ways that Sort of hadn't had occurred to me in thinking about how this sort of spins out of control, is that um, the, the Americans have a, a, not only the sense of grievance that they have towards Parliament, but then they they basically feel like they've been invaded, that their towns and property has been taken, and that there really is a war of self-defense. I mean, you know, when 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 the British are in Boston and you know Lexington and Concord is going to be the shots heard around the world, mm-hmm. they kick it all off. There's that real sense of Defending your own property, your own farms, your own families, and then the British will do things like bombard harbors randomly right at, early on,
2: burn towns, destroying towns yeah. at a
1: time before yeah. there's any stated cause really of anybody outside of the you know the immediate vicinity of the gun battles that happen, and uh, that that the Americans use these so powerfully to sort of mobilize
2: that sense. That's right. I think they're extremely clever. The, the Samuel Adams' of the world yeah. in rallying uh, people through the colonies yeah. to the what is essentially a Massachusetts cause.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, our fight is your fight. Yeah. Uh, this happened to us. This could happen to you. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Uh, you know, When the French and Indian War ends, 1763, the Brits don't go home. They Mm -hmm. stay here, they leave thousands of soldiers in the colonies, Mm -hmm. ostensibly to preserve peace on the frontier, but then, you know, you end up with regiments in Boston, you end up with things getting out of control, and five people are shot to death in the massacre Mm -hmm. in 1770. And that really becomes oppressive. That's Mm -hmm. not just about whether you can sell hats or not, that's about whether or not you've got an occupation force, and um, yeah. I, I think that uh, the the ability of especially those Boston radicals to take the sense that we have been invaded, yeah. that, that we are uh, under duress by an occupational force, and making their brethren to the south, meaning New York, and yeah. uh, you know on down through through South Carolina and even to Georgia feel that this is uh, this is not only burdensome this is something that we just can't tolerate yeah. and, uh, so, and and then it spins out of control like all wars do mm-hmm. you, know, uh, the, uh, you, know, you decide you're going to go try and seize some uh, military stuff in Concord and the next thing you know you're running for your life mm-hmm. and there are guys that are yeah. dead, a lot of guys who are dead and then a sense of vengeance takes hold, this is this is classic war uh, where I've got to avenge uh, my friend who's been killed whether you're a patriot yeah. or, or a redcoat uh, and then Bunker Hill and the next thing you know Charlestown is burned to the ground yeah. and Falmouth in Maine uh, shortly after that and you're right I think that those episodes uh, really are uh, it's gasoline on the fire yeah. it's also
1: it strikes me they, they the way they are thinking about their what's happening to them in the context of their own history, as we all do, we construct sort of our sense of right and wrong and justice from the stories we tell, whether they're biblical or ancient Roman or whatever. And these guys are obsessed with ancient Rome. And yeah. when, the, when is the Rubicon going to be crossed? And, the, the, you know, it's sort of this impending civil war mm-hmm. atmosphere. And there's also another thing that I think you bring out very nicely, very powerfully is this American optimism of the uh, of the authority of their cause, and the you know obviously they think their cause will be embraced in Canada, and they yeah. they have this <laughs> adventure in Canada. How, how much did you, so you obviously have written about Iraq, the Iraq War? You've been there. You've written a great biography of General Petraeus. You've seen the challenges of the most recent you know American occupying forces or adventures in mm-hmm. the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, That clearly is at play in some of the way you write about the Canadian uh, trip, it seems. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the first things we do uh, to show the nobility of our cause is to send an invading army into Canada. (laughs) Uh, It's not that there's not discussion about whether or not this betrays the notion that we're fighting a defensive war. Uh, but nevertheless, the decision is made because um, what can't be won by blandishment and and uh, and cajolery, namely to have Canada become a 14th colony, well, we'll do it by force, mm-hmm. and it'll make them better off for it. The yeah. Canadians. Well, that's not. Yeah, they'll, that's they'll the first embrace thing. us with open arms. <laughs> yeah, they will. Yes, yeah, right. Kind of like <laughs> going into Baghdad <laughs> they don't in 2003. Speak French at all, and we basically have hated these Catholics for a long We've time. We've hated but. the Catholics forever, and I mean the incendiary language about Catholics, particularly yeah. out of New England. They. Hated the Catholics and the French uh, because of the border skirmishes and the atrocities that yeah. have gone on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the idea that suddenly we're going to persuade the Canadians, particularly the habitants, mm-hmm. the, the French Canadians, that um, we're all brothers in arms together yeah. against the oppressive British, well, it's nonsense. And um, it, it's. Well, it, there did seem some potential early on. I mean, you know, they take Montreal and.
1: They, you know, I think though ultimately the incompetence of the crew, yeah. you know, completely alienates everyone. I mean, that's—it's not like they loved being under the British either. But if you're going to be just a, a, a clown version of the British, right? Well, <laughs> you, you know, that's not going to work. And well, they're all freezing to death, and nobody has any food, and they don't have any money. I mean, they're—it's utterly
2: incompetent as, yeah. as invasions go. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, a, it's kind of a model of how not to do it, yeah. and. Um, yeah. It's funny. I mean,
1: Americans in Canada, it reminds me of a quote from Jefferson in World War of 1812 when he says, conquering Canada will just merely be a matter of marching. You know, you just kind of show up. Yeah
2: and then you win. Yeah. Mean, and yeah. It's crazy. Well, it is crazy. and I mean, we do get everything except <laughs> Quebec City, um, so they do come close, but of course the British have not counterattacked right. yet. And, exactly. They never uh, could have held it. They could not have yeah. held it over time, and it's not clear that it would have been worth the candle. And of yeah. course, part of the reason for doing this is to prevent the British from having a staging area in Canada to advance down through Lake Champlain and the Hudson, which is exactly what they, they do. It's, it's not an... Mm-hmm. Uh, an ill-conceived uh, strategic gambit to try yeah. and forestall this right. But uh, the operational the, disaster. yeah uh, operation uh,
1: What's well, uh, astonishing is as you you know right about men in war and women in war, I mean, the feats of human prowess to, to get there, you know, to do this in the middle of winter with bloody feet and no food and, and how do you even... The way you're laying it out, you know, before they even started shooting at one another, you're sort of like, this is extraordinary.
2: Well, of course, Arnold's march through yeah. the main wilderness with 1,100 men. He doesn't have 1,100 when he finally gets to Quebec, but it is yeah. one of the great feats in the, mm. in the history of warfare. How do you So how do
1: you do that as a leader? How do you just get people to do it? I mean... Uh, you think of great military tacticians and generalship. Uh, oftentimes in the period, it's about the swiftness and the ability to to do things and move and and then fight and then move and then fight and keep going. and How, how does that? How is Arnold able to do it? And how, in general, do you see this playing well,
2: out? Well, first of all, I think Arnold is the finest battlefield commander on either side in the first. Hmm. Two or three years of the war, and obviously he's got some issues later. Yeah. Uh with
0: that. Well, he thought so too. <laughs> that was the only really problem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but he's a fascinating character, yeah. partly because he is born to lead other men in the dark of night. Yeah. I mean, those are rare birds, yeah. and. Uh, when you've got one, you're 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 lucky, and he's got. Uh, well, what do we know about it? What he how he did that? What do we know about it? I mean, we know he did it. We know the proof is in the pudding. But how did he do it? Uh, well, he made some serious miscalculations about the length of the journey and how long it was going to take him. Right. Basically, overestimated by a factor of two. <laughs> he, uh, he wrote to Washington. Washington recognizes that this troublesome guy. I mean, who's had issues already with Ethan Allen and others over the taking of Ticonderoga, Mm -hmm. and he just has a knack for irritating his colleagues. Mm -hmm. Uh, His entire life is just one skirmish and spat and duel and fist fight after another. I think he's got uh, some real organizational skills. Mm. He has shown it as a merchant. He Mm. ends up with a small fleet. He's learned how to not only uh, uh, run his own business, but to sail. And so when he becomes the Commodore of the American fleet at Champlain, at Valcour Island, yeah, uh, it's an astonishing feat. Yeah. Not only is he a great soldier, he's a great admiral, as it yeah. turns out. And the
1: last man in Canada. I mean, uh, he's uh, just uh, such uh, a performer, I, I, too, a, right? Yes, that's Which right. you
2: need to be. That's right. He's got yeah, a roles. great sense of drama, yeah. and he's got a sense of he has a mask of command, mm-hmm. to use a John mm-hmm. Keegan phrase. Mm-hmm that uh, man, the, the men in the ranks recognize that he will get us there, that he will lead us there, that he has great force of will as well as great competence. And that even if we're starving to death in the main wilderness in the middle of nowhere and the winter's coming, and it's, it's terrible. It's really awful. They're eating bark off of trees and uh, candle wicks. And, uh, and one of the things Arnold does when it really looks dark, it looks as though the entire expedition may fail. They may all die. Uh, he decides he goes ahead. He takes a small group and he goes down the Chaudière River and finds help and sends back uh, these these uh, peasants that he's found and they they're bringing oxen with them and mm-hmm. it's a salvation it's a moment of salvation and mm-hmm. when that happens and the word gets around not only to his expedition but it gets around to the to the colonies well this guy has got something mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. he's a man of parts yeah. as was said of George Patton yeah. he's somebody who he's a fighter he's Capable, he's competent, he's able to overcome odds, and he's got an indomitable will. And he's lucky. Mm. And I think that's also important. I mean, that was the trait that Napoleon most cherished in his generals. <laughs> Washington recognizes the yeah. importance Washington also a man of great luck, yeah, and and cherishes it in those of his subordinates who share luck with him. and And Arnold is one of those. Arnold is a man who, of luck.
1: There's remarkable characters on both sides of this throughout the book, and we can't get through them all for sure. But, uh, Know, a couple of come to mind, you know, Henry Knox a little bit, but uh, Charles Lee is another yeah. personage who seems yeah. like, uh, I mean, the Americans are just going to use the ones they find. I mean, it's really interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, he no, sounds like a horrible person to be around. Well, <laughs> like a bizarre a, guy. He's a very bizarre guy. <laughs> he looks bizarre. <laughs> he acts bizarre. Yeah. He's a British Army officer. He's a lieutenant colonel of the British Army and yeah. he kind of runs out his string and he's not getting promoted and life's yeah. not going well for him. He has been here during the French and Indian War and he's he's had a odd picaresque experience. He yeah. takes an Indian woman for his wife and she bears twins. He never sees them again. Yeah. Uh, he's got a name, Boiling Water. Yeah, Boiling Water, which describes, name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> describes his personality to a T. And, uh, you know, he has emigrated to the U.S. and he's a great talker. Mm. And, um, and he's a radical at, at heart. Yeah, and more uh, radical than Washington in many ways. He, he certainly is more ra- radical than and Washington, certainly in his vision
1: for operations and tactics. I mean.
2: That's right, and he, you know, he his would strategy. like to ri- run a guerrilla war, right. basically. And Washington recognizes that that is problematic for all <laughs> kinds of reasons. But Lee has skills. He's he's mm-hmm. been a professional British Army officer for twenty years. Montgomery yeah. the same, mm-hmm. Gates the mm-hmm. same. These are three British Army officers who have left their homeland. They've emigrated. Uh, and they are real professionals. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they know the basics. They know how to set up a camp. They know how to get people training. They know how to defend a, yeah. a position. Supply they, lines. Yeah. They know. And one of the things that Lee does is he's a great advocate for the uh, vulnerability of British soldiers. Mm-hmm. He, he, he preaches the, the gospel, uh, and certainly it's one that American. Soldiers and militiamen want to hear and that is that you can you can fight these guys. Mm. They're not uh, As great as they think they are mm. and we're fighting on our turf and on our terms and um, You know believe me that we can we can hold our own against them and so at least I think very useful in Preaching that to a point and then of course he goes off the rails you know as several of them do they mm. their time on the stage is uh, at least captured. He foolishly has uh, left the main body of the army that he's leading to join Washington and uh, the, a British cavalry uh, squadron finds that he's in the middle of New Jersey, basically <laughs> yeah. undefended, and he's captured, yeah. and it's a calamity for him. Uh, Washington recognizes it may not be that big a calamity yeah. for him. Yeah, a for opportunity yes, for him, absolutely. Yes, it yeah. is, because Lee's become problematic. Lee's become yeah. essentially disloyal. Yeah, very slowly moving his army yeah. to where he wants yeah. it to be moved to. And writing letters behind yeah. Washington's back, trying to yeah. stir up uh, animosity toward Washington questioning Washington's capabilities. He's he's disloyal.
1: Washington's survival through the whole revolution, obviously this book stops uh, after the Battle of Princeton, um, but uh, I I think he's an incredible political general. I think you say in here, actually, he's unmatched as a political general in American history. Certainly never superseded. That's right. That's the phrase you use.
2: Yeah, well, look when he takes over the uh, command and what does
1: that? Well, first of all,
2: what does that mean? What is a political general? Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I talked to David Petraeus about this, uh, who's also a political general, and it's it's a term that generals today find very alarming because they, they don't want to be <laughs> yeah. thought of as political generals. Yeah. Dwight Eisenhower was the only general in American military history who's close to Washington as a political general, mm. and what I mean by that is. A, a recognition that uh, there are powers larger than you in a democracy or an mm-hmm. emerging republic that uh, you must be, you must attend. Yeah. Uh, that's a template that Washington is Absolutely. making up as he goes along. Public opinion is one of them. Okay? Well, that's, that's right. <laughs> Public opinion and also, you know, when Washington's in Cambridge, He's writing letter after letter, not only to Congress but to colonial governors and to mm. opinion makers, yeah. and to, so he spends a lot of his time acknowledging, first of all, civilian command of the military. It's a concept that you know it's not it's not written in stone anywhere in 1775. Mm. He acknowledges it. He recognizes but Charles Lee didn't believe in it. That's for sure. Charles, a lot of people don't believe yeah. in it who are in uniform. <laughs> yeah. And uh, particularly when things go bad and you think those bumbling idiots yeah. in Philadelphia, they have no idea what we're going through out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, why should we pay any attention? I don't to think it? Arnold believed in it. <laughs> I think I, 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 Arnold, yeah, yes, yeah. Arnold did not, that's yeah. right. But
1: it's interesting, so I, uh, I guess gave a talk at the National War College last week and they've been very generous to invite me back for the last four years to give a talk on George Washington as a strategic leader. Mm-hmm. And they, the, the National War College is really extraordinary because it's all the branches and it's this transition point from operational excellent uh, officers who are on the track to become strategic leaders, general staff, and others. And they also have people from the State Department there and, and CIA, others. Yeah, yeah foreign, 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 foreign and yeah. And so they teach strategic leadership as their sort of mode. And they call, but they call themselves the warriors. You know, it's sort of like they're we're the warriors. And, and, and in my talk, I always say. You all want to call yourselves warriors and be warriors, but you have, if you're going to be great strategic leaders, you have to become politicians, because it exactly recognizes that um, it's not just public opinion in a free society, but it's all the other institutions and communities that a strategic leader has to be aware of, and uh, and, and in some ways, you know, uh, uh, take, you know, taking account of as they, yeah. they make decisions and yep. decision-making processes. And, Um, And that, I think, is you capture that well with Washington. I mean, he's dealing with, as you show, I mean, the Congress, the other officers, committees of safety, these state governments, you know, random private owners of stuff that he needs access to, and the willingness to recognize that all these people have a stake in, you know, in uh, in the
2: story that he's a part of, really. And that you need them, that you cannot wage the kind of war, particularly for eight years, without them. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt in explaining why he chose Dwight Eisenhower, who's relatively junior, to be the Supreme Allied Commander, uh, uh, first in the Mediterranean and then in Europe, said he's the best politician among the generals. Uh, yeah, yeah, Eisenhower did not think that was a slur. <laughs> you know, yeah. he recognized that, first of all, the United States military is the largest political organization in the country, mm-hmm. then, now, forever, will always be. Yeah. Uh, and second, that the kind of politician that Roosevelt was talking about the kind of politician you and I are talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's a rare capability for you to be able to be a battlefield general and to be a political general of the sort that marshals together yeah. all of the, the the resources necessary to hold public will together, to provide uh, the logistical support that you need, to keep the home front to uh, not only happy, but understanding of what it is that you're doing, why their sons and daughters are dying. Uh, And I think that, you know, when we look at political generals in American history, and there are very few of them who are really good, it starts with Washington. Mm -hmm. Uh, Washington uh, shows how it can be done, how it should be done, and very few have matched him uh, or even come close to him since then.
1: Let's talk about uh, him a little bit more in the context of some of the narrative uh, failures in New York, Long Island. Um, why do the Americans lose Long Island and New York? Could anyone have kept it? And, uh, and, and how did that play out in your own research as you're kind of trying yeah. to understand that
2: well, after, theater? Well, after all these accolades for Washington, I think we should acknowledge <laughs> that he's, he's not a great tactical commander. Uh, he's not a great operational commander. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower is the same way. You can point to a number of episodes in Western Europe, in the the Mediterranean, where Eisenhower does not see the battlefield spatially and temporally the way a great captain does, Mm. the way a Napoleon does, the way a Grant does. Washington is the same way. Washington is there at, uh, you know, he's there in the Brooklyn Heights basically (laughs) looking out at the army of the Brits that have arrived with Hessians, and he just doesn't see it. He Mm. just, first of all, he knows that an archipelago, as New York is, is very difficult to defend if you don't have mastery of the sea. Mm. He knows that, Uh, he's no fool. Uh, uh, He also knows that Congress does not want him to surrender New York Mm -hmm. without a fair fight, without fighting for it. It's, uh, you know, it's an important asset to the colonies. Um, So he tries to cut the baby in half Mm -hmm. fundamentally. And when it comes time to fighting the fight, he he doesn't recognize that the dispositions on Long Island that have been made— First of all by Green, but then Green gets sick yeah, and lesser general sick,
1: that's what you often see, right? He's when, not there. He when doesn't. Green
2: is not there, things usually don't go well. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, and Washington does not recognize that the dispositions that have been made are really vulnerable, mm-hmm. that the thin line that you have set there along the heights of Guana, you you punk, punch through one of those gaps in the line. Mm-hmm. And the whole line is going to fold. Up. Up. He, he yeah. just doesn't see it. He doesn't recognize it. It's a tactical failing. Yeah. He goes back to Manhattan and you know writes a letter. <laughs> to, to to wash about you know make sure the cherry trees are planted properly, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> which is his way of uh, of alleviating stress. Yeah, Thinking yeah, about I think was exerting
1: control too,
2: like well, that in too. In, a,
1: in a moment of for complete sure. lack of control,
2: he's for sure he's such a type A order orderly guy. Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good point too. Yes, yeah. that's something yeah. he can control. Yeah, or at least can imagine he can control, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs>
1: yes, because yeah, he'll be disappointed when he gets back to Mount Vernon too. <laughs> I'm sure, but, uh, uh-huh. but yeah, that's a remarkable sequence. Though Washington A survives as the commander in chief after that, and then, uh, but then the turnaround at uh, at Trenton.
2: Well, the first thing he does, and again, he's lucky—he gets away. Uh, he's really, uh, the, the
1: American uh, Dunkirk, right? I mean, it's uh, kind of the uh, thing. Saves it, the
2: army. Very much an American Dunkirk, where the Brits have been bottled up in Brooklyn, and uh, you know, all it takes is for Howe to be a little more aggressive. Now, Howe has reasons for not doing yeah. it. He's taken pretty serious losses in the in the battle for Long Island thus far, and he knows that as uh, Expeditionary Force commander, you. You've got to be really wary of casualties because yeah. you yeah. don't replace them. Yeah. And so he's he's thinking, uh, do I want to make a frontal assault on these pretty good American entrenchments? The Americans have heavier cannon. Uh, they've got serious artillery there, so he's going to take his time and he's going to uh, basically uh, begin a siege. Mm-hmm and Washington takes advantage of that, takes advantage of fog that providentially arrives yes, in the middle Yes, that's right, <laughs> Providence, <laughs> Providence is on his side, and so they escape, and I mean, again... Without I, a loss, without a casualty, uh, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, dark uh, of night. Astonishing. It's and, amazing. You know, the Brits show up and they find the Americans are gone, and... Yeah, that's the, uh, you know, So he's escaped there, and he escapes again at uh, White Plains, yeah. basically. Not quite as dramatically, but And they take a terrible loss at Fort Washington where Washington, again, does not see the vulnerability of his position. Again, Green is not sick this time, and Green has made a terrible decision in advising Washington, oh, no problem, we can get across the Hudson if need be. Mm -hmm. Well, 3,000 men are captured, it's a calamity, and then it's, you know, you're in retreat across New Jersey. What does he do? He says, I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to do something dramatic and desperate. Mm-hmm. And I think he, here we see him as his intelligence chief, mm-hmm. as his own intelligence chief. Yeah. I mean, he's doing everything. <clears throat> he's his own staff. Yeah, right? I mean, that's he what did. you're saying. he's making his own maps. <laughs> right. He's right. telling people where the latrines should go. That's right. He, um,
1: he's doing it all. Eisenhower had a few more people supporting him.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like five <laughs> 5,000 yeah. in, in, uh, in yeah. North Africa yeah. uh, on his staff. <laughs> (laughs) So he's he's looking at the intelligence of what the British and Hessian dispositions are in New Jersey, and he recognizes a vulnerability. In the way that he has not seen his own vulnerabilities, he sees enemy vulnerabilities at Trenton in particular. And so makes this a um, courageous decision to cross the Delaware under horrible conditions. And so he didn't have a
1: death wish. He wasn't trying to end it all with his uh, desperate
2: move. <laughs> I, he made himself a, <laughs> out of the trouble. Well, of if thristed. he had a death wish, he sure didn't you know, kill himself very effectively.
1: I don't think so. I think yeah. he, you know. You, you, and again, you know. though, it's one of those best laid plans situations where you've got the three prongs that are going to cross the river. They're all going to meet up, and it's going to work like clockwork, yeah. and, it, and none of it happens. Yeah for his yeah. group, and they still press on.
2: So. And they press on, in part because he has yeah. correctly gauged the uh, yeah. vulnerability of enemy defenses, and well, he's playing it by ear to some yeah. extent. Then, then what? Okay, so you capture the Hessian garr- garrison, you've got you know, hundreds mm-hmm. of prisoners, and then what are you going to do? Well, you know, he's thinking of, he's thinking on the fly. And yeah. uh, How
1: does Washington use his war councils? Uh, is that something that evolves from the beginning of this book, or is this something that you think uh, is, from the beginning, he's consistent with how he's dealing with advice? I mean, I, I don't have an opinion. I know I'm.
2: I think he, uh, he he becomes more confident in his own judgments. Mm. He's been told by Congress that taking counsel of your senior— That's right, required, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it's required, right? Yeah, right. It's required, Right. Uh, I don't think they say you have to take a vote, but basically it's this is going to be a, a group effort and mm-hmm. you've got these experienced guys around you and their political considerations and you've got guys like Schuyler who's important in New York and you've got mm-hmm. men like Lee who's very experienced. So, you know, listen to them. Mm-hmm. Well, he listens to them and for the most part, they're, they don't know any more than he does and they give him bad advice in some cases. I think he becomes uh, not dismissive of them, but certainly less. um, I mean, they save him from himself on occasion. In Boston, for sure. In Boston, for sure. Mm. Uh, He wants to launch a frontal attack across the ice at Mm. one point, which is completely cuckoo. Mm. Uh, You know, he they they basically show him the vulnerability of the British garrison uh, by taking Dorchester Heights. He can read a map, he knows Dorchester is the high ground and that it's always better than the low ground. And yet, they're kind of nudging him to, you know, this is how we ought to do it, boss. This is really, Mm -hmm. Green and all the others are against his plan, to a man, Hmm. virtually. So they have been useful to him. And Hmm. I I think he recognizes that, that they've given him sound advice. He's he's not very uh, generous in acknowledging their role. Hmm. He was also not entirely truthful at the time. The man who could never tell a lie sure can prevaricate at times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you don't tell
1: lies in war, then you'll never win. Well, Isn't that yeah, Sun Tzu or something like that? Well, he also <laughs>
2: tells he tells lies Roberts. to help preserve himself politically, yeah. right? That's yes, right. Uh, yeah. And, they're, yeah, it's not entirely true what he's telling Congress all the time. Mm. And he, he hedges things in a way that uh uh doesn't give congress a, a full picture of what's happened but um i think that he ultimately decides that he's got um uh, as he gets deeper into it uh, the experience of being a commander in chief of commanding a continental force mm. he says when he you know shows up in in uh, cambridge and in July, 1775, I don't know how to do any of this yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, never commanded more than probably a thousand men. That, that's
2: right. You know? And that was 20 years and was,
1: They were never at full strength, and they were scattered across forts in the French any war. Yeah,
2: right. And there are all kinds yeah. of things that he had never had responsibility yeah. for, yeah. including continental logistics yeah. and so on.
1: Well, so logistics is really something that you uh, you clearly love, and you're great at helping, I think, us understand the 18th century. Problem there, and one of the things I was blown away by is your description of Cork uh, in Ireland and what the British are doing to kind of mobilize this uh, victualling challenge, the supply challenge is extraordinary. And that's just look at that fleet, um, uh, an army that Howe the Howe brothers show up with. Uh, I mean, forty percent of the British Navy is there. You got thirty thousand. Troops, British troops, plus another ten thousand Hessians coming. Uh, I mean, that's on a scale. I mean, we think of these armies as very small, I guess, in the American Revolution compared to even the Civil War and, and later, obviously, Eisenhower's armies and that sort of thing. But that's a scale that's really difficult. That's larger than any city in North America at the time. that's as a Vow's army and, and the naval yeah. fleet that shows up. How do you feed it? How do you supply it? Yeah. How are the British able to even prosecute this
2: thing? Well, they're, they're not very good at it at <laughs> first because they've underestimated the challenges of expeditionary warfare in the age of sail and... Expeditionary warfare at any, in any age is really hard. I mean, I've seen it in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Somalia, Iraq. Uh, even when you've got the extraordinary logistical capabilities that we've got in of flight. Communications. Yeah, <laughs> modern <laughs> communications, all of that. It's real hard, really hard to, mm-hmm. to uh, deploy and sustain a force a long way away mm-hmm. and, and to fight. And so multiply that by 100 and you get some idea what they're facing in the 18th century. Yeah. Now they think that they're going to be able to, because they've had a lot of experience in fighting in North America as a consequence of the of the earlier war, but they'd had the American colonies on their side, providing them with a sanctuary in New England, providing them with food, fodder, all the rest of the things Mm -hmm. that you need. They don't have that now, and they have underestimated the challenges of getting it. Every time they wander outside of Boston or later New York, they get ambushed. Mm -hmm. and uh, So everything has to come from the mother country, has to come from... Uh, Ports in England or particularly Cork, which is... That's where their
1: overestimation of Loyalist support is killer, I think. Yeah, I think Through the whole war, really. But all the lessons about how an occupying force should not behave in a country they're occupying... The British are telling that tale as well as the Americans did in Canada, except on a bigger scale. Yeah,
2: that's right. And they they overestimate the number of loyalists, the percentage of loyalists, the uh, the intensity of loyalist loyalty. Um, yeah, well, then they abandon them. You know, they, they abandon they, them. They, that's they,
1: right. they, they once they leave the scene, the loyalists are there. They've stuck their neck out, and uh, and then what happens? I mean, and that is the classic lesson there.
2: That's exactly right. And and how do you uh, you know conquer, occupy, preserve, and so on. I mean, Henry Clinton, who becomes the commander-in-chief after Howe and is the British commander-in-chief for the longest period, sees it sees the problems more clearly than most others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he recognizes the the conundrum of going to a place like South Carolina and, uh, okay, the loyalists may or may not rally to you, but if they rally to you, then what if you sail away again? Yeah. First of yeah. all, they're subject to extremely harsh treatment Mm -hmm. by their rebel brothers.
1: American heroes, the
2: patriots. That's right. (laughs) The patriots who can be really nasty. Really nasty. Uh, The things that were done to the loyalists uh, are shameful in some cases. Uh, and Clinton recognizes that the force available is not sufficient to uh, uh, hold. I mean, we've been through this in Afghanistan.
1: Well, that's what I wanted to talk a little bit about. I mean, to what extent have Americans, you know, failed in that way? I mean, when John Shai wrote about the American Revolution, he had the specter of Vietnam sort of framing the way he's thinking about, Mm -hmm. and, and I think some of the best stuff ever written about the political you know, uh, characteristic of the war in terms of the loyalties of people and the militias and the role the militias play. And uh, um, I mean, do you do you see it? I mean, Vietnam's different from I, I, Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously, so you're bringing a different kind of perspective to bear. What are, what are the lessons that uh, military leaders can take from these stories?
2: Well, uh, the first lesson is uh, expeditionary warfare is really hard. It's really hard then, really hard now. That uh, a counterinsurgency is really difficult. Then, now, uh, you know, ask Petraeus. Uh, he wrote the counterinsurgency manual, literally. And so he succeeded where others had
1: failed, and came in and turned the tide in the yeah. surge in Afghanistan and Iraq. And and what was the what was he leaning on? I mean, well, more troops, yeah. bigger force. That was critical to it. Uh, um. Clinton uses the phrase, I mean... Paraphrase. He uses the "hearts and minds" he does. phrase, which yeah. is extraordinarily prescient. Yeah, you know, when you come across that, you yeah. must have
2: been like, "Oh my God!" this yeah, is... Uh, yeah, right. And he is uses like it repeatedly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. He and yeah. he talks very clearly about how we have to to win hearts and minds yeah. and uh, subdue the minds, win sub- the hearts, win the hearts and subdue the minds, yeah. subdue the minds. Yeah. Like that. uh, and that's exactly the point. Yeah. I mean, you've got to win the hearts and subdue the minds, mm-hmm. and. Uh, The the Brits are incapable of doing it effectively in the revolution. I think we're pretty ineffective at doing it in in a place like Afghanistan these days. uh, Iraq, you know. I was there in 2003 and saw the uh, naivete. Mm. I was with Petraeus. I've even a guy with a PhD from Princeton who's very shrewd in understanding the nuances of something like this yeah. not really understanding how complex a society like a rock is. Mm. Yeah, okay they're Shiites, they're Sunnis, they're Bathists, okay, well I kinda got that. A, I read my brief. Yeah, it's fine in a textbook. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is it what does it mean? What does it really mean yeah. when it comes to <clears throat> trying to uh, get these people to stop fighting each other, stop fighting you? You've helped these folks. You've angered these folks. Angered them to the point where they're killing themselves in order to 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 blow up soldiers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and well, it just takes one
1: town bombardment to set off a whole continent, right? Well, I mean, that's right. That's the thing. It isn't just the people you hurt. It's the story that's told about how it happened. That's right.
2: And controlling the narrative is important. The Americans in the Revolution control the narrative from the beginning.
1: Well, and even so Clinton understood the need to win the Hartsons to do the 9s, and Clinton fails. Yeah. He ultimately is the failing yeah. commander-in-chief of in yeah. the whole thing. So yes. And even if you know, it doesn't mean you can do it.
2: That's right. <coughs> and even if you've got 40% of the, of the British Navy there, yeah. even if you've got most of—it's a relatively small army, and you've got most of, the, of your regimental strength in North America, but— mm. I mean, it's pointed out that uh, many people in London don't really understand scale. Mm. You know, they look at the map and they say, "Well, gosh, it, you know, Pennsylvania's the size of Lancashire." Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not. Yeah. And you're talking about a coastline that is uh, really something beyond anything that you've yeah. been accustomed to dealing with. In the British,
1: the British, had designed their empire to really govern islands, not you know yeah. states or a continent, as they all of a sudden found they had at the end of the Seven Years' War. That's so, right. Uh, a lot of challenges logistically that were there that were not resolved before this conflict started,
2: and the issue had been debated hotly within the King's Council over whether can we do this just with the Navy? Mm. Can we do? Can we use a naval force and basically impose an embargo mm. until they until they cry uncle? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and there was a feeling: no, we got to be quicker than that. That would take years, maybe decades. You know, maybe even as much as eight years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's the plug. yeah. Well, look at us in Afghanistan now. What is it, 19, yeah, 18 yeah. years or yeah, something? It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, it is extraordinary. Uh, so we got to end this. Uh, this has been really enjoyable. But what um, you know, what what do you think the the reading public out there? And hopefully, you'll bring a lot of fans of your work from World War II and 20. What do you think they'll be, or what are you hoping, I guess, they'll be astonished by, interested by, in this narrative of the American Revolutionary War?
2: Well, one of the things that I hope people take away from it is that, you know, whatever problems beset us today, we've been through a lot worse. We've had bigger challenges, existential challenges, and have shown the fortitude, the tenacity, the ingenuity to work our way through it. And uh, that should be a great uh, consolation, I think, to people. And uh, I think we read history in part to understand not only where we came from and who we are and all that stuff, but how we've managed to essay the issues before. Mm -hmm. And I I hope that people see that. I hope they also see that um, there are qualities of leadership that we've been fortunate enough to have in this country, Republican virtues, Mm -hmm. small R. Of of, of of probity, mm-hmm. of, uh, of a willingness to uh, sacrifice for a greater cause. Mm-hmm. Washington embodies these things to, to the nines. And I hope they see that um, this is important, that we rediscover these virtues in our leaders and that we embrace them and that we demand that we have these things mm-hmm. in our leaders, that we don't have to settle for incompetence that we don't have to settle for uh people who don't measure up mm-hmm. and uh a great people find great leaders and that's something that uh, our history teaches us
1: i love that our history teaches us values it teaches us uh, confidence that we can draw and strength from we can learn from of course but we can hold ourselves up to a higher standard with and uh and that patriotism shouldn't be a, a bad word it's about love of country but it requires a common story.
2: It requires a common story. We've got to know uh, who we are, where we came from. Uh, It's got to tell us uh, uh, what we've been through. And um, so I think that that's uh, very important for everybody to know.
1: Well, thank you so much, Rick. This is Doug Bradburn of Mount Vernon with Rick Atkinson. Very exciting. We're looking forward to The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, 1775 to 1777. The volume one in the Revolution Trilogy, uh, published by Henry Holt, coming out, I think May 14th is the official publication date of uh, 2019. Congratulations. I'm very excited to see everybody devour this and, uh, and see you all
2: over the news. Thank you, Doug. It's always delightful to talk.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.